This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Richards, and today I'm here to talk to Regina Palos about her new book published earlier this year, People's Tribunals, Human Rights in the Law. Regina is an attorney who's participated on two People's Tribunals. Amongst her other talents, she's also a member of the World Peace Through Law section of the Washington State Association and the co-chair of the International Refugee Law section of the American Bar Association. Regina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jane, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, I'm wondering if you can begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself and also how you came to write People's Tribunals, Human Rights and the Law. Oh, yeah. So essentially, I um, was first exposed to a People's Tribunal when I was invited to speak at a conference on the Iran Tribunal, which was a People's Tribunal that was organized uh, to examine the mass atrocities that happened in around the 80s in Iran. And when I got to the conference, I all of a sudden was exposed to how many movements like this were happening. And um, then I was very fortunate to be asked by some child sex abuse survivors in the United Kingdom to organize one. So we did that between 2015 and 2016. And then after that, I was, again, uh, fortunate enough to be asked to participate in the China Tribunal, which ended this February um, of 2020 uh, with the final report on forced organ harvesting uh, in China. Yeah, great. That's, um, you've, it sounds like you've been like, that's quite the initiation process. Um, you've kind of like hit the ground running, it certainly sounds like. Um, and now I'm wondering if you can tell us, especially for the uninitiated, a little bit more about what people's tribunals actually are and how they function and how they're different from, say, the International Criminal Court or domestic courts? So people's tribunals, the way the, the best way I describe them are just peaceful grassroots movements. So sometimes mm-hmm. a lot of the cases that we or a lot of situations that people examine in people's tribunals, they can't be litigated because maybe the statute of limitations is up, or maybe there's no political will to do something about it. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, for the UK Child Sex Abuse People's Tribunal, it was really about trying to figure out where the issues were. And it, I, I think about them as if you're trying to create a whole movement, this is one tool that's used in the movement to kind of either raise awareness or to move an issue forward. And so uh, you know, in the status quo, we're seeing a lot of different kind of protest activities. So with movements like mm. Black Lives Matter or even the Hong Kong uh, protests, something like that, this kind of people's tribunal 
which is an informal tribunal that's that the people themselves create as to how they want it to look like and what questions it's going to answer helps to either raise awareness about the movement, but also look at a specific, and usually it's a human rights issue that it examines. There are in Australia, for instance, um, and in India as well, uh, tribunals that are dedicated to environmental injustices as well. And that's interesting. I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I wanted to ask you, do, do you think it can, a people's tribunal can be a kind of accountability mechanism, you know, in, especially in absence of all the protests, oh, sorry, in the, in the kind of gaps we're seeing now where people don't feel that they are being heard. So as you say, in the Black Lives Matter movement or Hong Kong protests, and, you know, there is this kind of um, feeling of a lack of accountability of perhaps government police officers. Do you think this is a gap potentially that people's tribunals could feel as part of a wider movement? Yes. And I think, uh, you know, if, if people wanted to examine, so maybe, you know, in, in certain areas, there's a different issue, or maybe certain groups want to specifically look at, uh, you know, uh, police brutality, or maybe somebody wants to look at, you know, that kind of uh, behavior within the criminal justice system, you can focus the people's tribunals on specific issues. And you can you can kind of make it the format you want. So you can set it up like a commission. Maybe it's like a like you set it up like a Western trial um, for Hong Kong. It may be you know uh, just a specific question as to what what is the solution, uh, you know. And and so maybe people will come up with different things. So that's one of the things that we do in the book is we examine different methods um, that have been used. And so for for one of the examples that I know very well is of the Rohingya. Um, because they have been facing a genocide for decades now, but there was a people's tribunal that then brought people. And now that kind of discussion then prompted probably a lot of people to start looking at the issue more um, because it, it helped to raise another level of awareness as to what's really going on. Um, and that's interesting because you do talk quite a lot about, uh, in the book there's different chapters on different tribunals sorry, different people's tribunals, I should say. Um, and they do seem to be quite flexible and adaptable to domestic circumstances. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about um, the different tri- people's tribunals and also perhaps the organisational structure, perhaps starting with the Rohingya tribunal and how it is adapted to the local circumstances. Well, I believe the Rohingya, uh, the Rohingya People's Tribunal was a permanent people's tribunal. So there's, there's, I kind of, uh, in the book talk about three different formats. There's the Russell Tribunal and, and Russell, uh, was the one who started this all off in Vietnam trying to, it was his peaceful way of protesting the U.S. inner, um, U.S. intervention, uh, in, in Vietnam. And so that's one method. And, and the Russell Tribunal has had kind of different, uh, it's the same format. They may take up different topics. So one of the most recent ones they've uh, looked at is Palestine. Um, and they put experts on that mm-hmm. talk about the issues facing there. But a second uh, format is this permanent people's tribunal, which is run out of an organization in Italy the, um, by a senator who did work with an Italian senator who used to work with Russell. And so that has like a specific format. And so they select what's called judges, and they operate under a a charter constitution to deliver a report. And it it follows a specific format every time. And then the third type is these uh, ones that I have been a part of, which are really independent, 
they don't have a format. Everybody creates the format in the beginning when they're trying to figure out what they want to do. And so some of them, are, like, for instance, the UK Child Sex Abuse People's Tribunal, we had to be very cognizant of the fact that some people who came forward, they just didn't want their names out there. They didn't, they didn't want to have their names in reports and they didn't yeah, okay. feel comfortable because the topic's so sensitive. Whereas in the China Tribunal, uh, you can find the website, you can see everyone who testified. It was, you know, two different settings of people publicly testifying about the torture and kinds of things that they experienced um, being political prisoners. So the, it's nice. And I think a lot of times what it comes down to is number one, how many people do you have helping with the tribunal, to, the People's Tribunal to set it up? But number two, also, sometimes it comes down to funds. And then, of course, the, the issue itself. So in the book, the Iran Tribunal, which is which is highlighted in the book, they got to go to The Hague and put on a whole hearing and they had a prosecutor and, you know, they had they kind of had this whole formal presentation um, with with uh, survivors of, of, of what happened. And that that's just a totally different way that they decided to do it. Um. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You raise a couple of points about, you know, it's how how many people you have, how many funds you have, what the issues are and how they're narrowed down. And so I'm wondering from a logistics point of view, um, how how do you kind of come to agreement and how do you, how, how does it start really, I guess, and then, yeah, develop? Well, I think in, in most cases... Sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. In most cases, I think it's the survivors and victims that will approach somebody and can okay. ask them, will you please, you know, can we set this up? Can we do it? And sometimes they take a very long time because there might be just disagreements as to how to approach it. What's the exact question? Um, you know, maybe, you know, it's just that's not they don't want to participate in that question. They want another question. So it's it really it's kind of like organizing any type of movement, right? There's always going to be people who want to do it a certain okay. way and things like that. But um, yeah, so from there, you know, most people who organize it, um, they, they select the topic. So I know in India, for instance, I think there's a standing, we don't talk about this in the book, but there is a standing, I think, organization of, of people's tribunals. And they, they have just several different topics that they've already covered. I think their last one may have been like two years ago, but just very different, different issues. And, and clearly they're putting on different experts, um, which is the other thing. So maybe survivors want specific experts to talk, or maybe the survivors want to be front and center of that. And that's how they get organized. So it really, it's such a, it's, I, I call it an art form because it's kind of creating a, a tribunal, an informal tribunal from, from how you want it, what you want it to accomplish. Okay, I see. And um, because one of the key chapters in the book, you talk about survivors' rights and it mm -hmm. seems a very effective um, and a more efficient perhaps way of protecting survivors' and victims' rights. Can you talk about this a little bit in the book, please? Yes, yeah, that's actually my chapter, so thank you for <laughs> bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> no, it, was, yes. it was a really good one too. <laughs> thank you. Um, one of the things that I find that's most important in these movements and sometimes gets uh, washed away is the fact that we really, uh, even in the international community and, and in different parts of the world, we, we still haven't achieved the type of access to justice that many survivor groups need. And when we talk about like these bigger crimes, like genocide, crimes against humanity, even war crimes, how do you how do you really provide and give space for victims and survivors to talk about 
what they've gone through. And if, if they want their quote unquote day in court, uh, what does that really look like? And so um, this is, is, it's one of those things where I think that a people's tribunal and one of the things they do need to start incorporating is the fact that they need to kind of outline what victims and survivors can expect from them. Because I think sometimes it's not clear. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, for me, it's kind of like a way to let them have, be empowered because they're kind of central to the movement. That's interesting. And do you find it is empowering for survivors and for victims more so, especially compared to like a regular criminal trial? Uh, from, from the survivors and victims that I've met who've gone through the process, they've yeah. all, yeah, generally say yes, it has been for them. Um, yeah, okay. And I guess following on from that, after the uh, after the um, tribunal is completed, is there any kind of follow-up or is it is it like a regular trial where it's, you know, that's the end and you walk out, that's kind of it? Well, I think that's what um, Shadi uh, Sadr actually covers in, in, in the last chapter, which, um, you know, we wanted to make mm-hmm. sure that we were very open about the challenges to it, which is a lot of people's yeah. tribunals when they're finished, there's no, uh, it, you don't want, the worst thing that can happen is you put out a report, you spend all this money and time on something, and then there's nothing done with it. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, it's because there's a lot of information. I mean, you, you, you read the book, Jane. So it's, it's like, you can yeah. see how many people's tribunals have been done. And would you have known yeah. that these reports existed had you not even seen the book, you know? So yeah. I think there is that challenge, to be honest, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and so I guess that raises a point on what are the limits of people's tribunals, do you say, and the challenges? Well, I think one of the the biggest limits is probably state governments accepting the legitimacy of these movements because they tend to dismiss it as some kind of, I think one of the terms used by one of the state governments uh, regarding a people's tribunal was it's a kangaroo court. But I talk about that in my chapter too, right? Like I mentioned the fact that we don't have to use all the formal legal language. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just call it a movement and and still have the same result. you know, but there are governments that do take them seriously and they do consider the reports. And uh, we did find like with the China tribunal, for instance, that is something that people are paying attention to because it's such a atrocious issue. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I, perhaps, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in particular, one of the chapters, um, chapter four talked about the third world approaches to international law. So um, especially as people's tribunals increasingly gain legitimacy from, for example, the one in China and increasing recognition, it's a, perhaps a normative challenge to assumptions in international law or domestic law. And they, you know, um, perhaps this kind of, there is this challenge. Can you talk about, you know, the third world approaches to international law and how this is more adaptable in people's tribunals? Yeah, so I'll try because Tamil, he did a great job with the chapter and he's the yeah. expert. But essentially the viewpoint that I wanted to incorporate is the fact that we we tend to see things through a very dominant perspective, right? Through uh, this mm-hmm. is kind of the right way to do things and, and, and this is there's a wrong way. But what People's Tribunal essentially do is critique the system and say, actually, there's multiple ways to approach a problem and we can talk about it in different ways. 
Um, and maybe it's not the accepted dominant way that things have to be sorted out. Um, I, I mean, that's my very lay person's uh, explanation of what Tamil wrote in that chapter, mm-hmm. but I think it's a valuable contribution because I don't think people, like I said before, right? Like it's easy to dismiss them because we don't understand them because it uses certain language. But at the end yeah. of the day, it really is just a movement. And it's really just people sitting down and having a formal life conversation that'll end up with a report at the end. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, do, do you see people's tribunals as sort of a, as a challenge or a supplement or a way perhaps to inform international law and domestic law? I think it. I I think it can definitely supplement, and I definitely think it can challenge because yep. I think you can bring about new norms, right? If 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 it's something yep. that's accepted, but I think the the hardest part is, um, you know, again, it's it all comes down to the question. So if you're um, one of the things that I see all the time is like if yep. you set up a a tribunal, a people's tribunal, and the question the answer is very obvious from where you're going to go. I think then you have a, you have, you have a credibility issue there because mm-hmm. you have to do, you got to show your work as to how you're getting there. Um, but I think yeah. if you're open to like different results, then it, then they can be very challenging and I think they can be very effective. Yeah. Okay. And um, in terms of effectiveness, one of the chapters is about truth commissions. So do you feel it's a more, people's tribunals are a more effective way of kind of bringing out the truth or what's their relationship with truth commissions? Yeah. So Ronald uh, Rogo did that. He wrote that chapter and, and essentially, um, you know, truth commissions are formal because they are usually the state is incorporated into the role of a truth commission. So the state's participating Mm -hmm. on some level where the people's tribunal is just people. There's no state involvement. Um, and I yeah. think that people's tribunal in that sense are very flexible. And I think that mm-hmm. you can have the participation of a lot more people and you would probably have more, um, you know, like I think, I think sometimes, and I don't know if we're moving in a direction that's different, but I think sometimes people tend to look at state involvement in something and say, oh, you know what, they're going to, they're not going to really look at all the issues um, or they're not going to yeah. want to look bad. Whereas people's tribunal, you can look at anything and yeah, it, it doesn't matter. We're we're in searching for a form of the truth, um, based on who's participating mm-hmm. is what the, the truth is that we'll come to. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, so can you tell me, just going back a step in terms of participation and they're being more flexible, how did people's tribunals initially come to start? Have they been around for a long time or, you know, yeah, where did they start? So I, th- I believe the first documented one was the Russell Tribunal, which, which we talk about yep. in, in the book. And, and so the mm-hmm. Russell Tribunal was started by um, Mr. Russell himself. And he, again, it was his way of protesting Vietnam. And he had a bunch of philosophers with him and, and activists. And they sat down and they just took testimony after testimony after testimony about Vietnam. And um, 
And then he did it again. They did another version of one in Latin America after that. And then um, eventually his, his style lived on, uh, even though he had passed away. And so he was, the, he was really the first one. Now, I have to be fair because the reality is, is that if there are other versions of it, um, you know, because it's, it's, it's always true that maybe in a, in, in a different part of the world, there was something like that that's always been going on. Um, because indigenous communities have their own versions of truth telling mechanisms. So yeah, maybe someday I'd be curious to see if there, if there are earlier ones than the Vietnam tribunal that have, uh, you know, that the Russell tribunal in Vietnam that have been kind of approached and what the outcomes of those were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, that's an interesting point, you know, that, um, it's perhaps there's this knowledge building and knowledge sharing and this evolutionary process. And I wonder, like, in, because you talked about three different types of tribunals, the Russell, Russell Tribunal, the Permanent um, People's Tribunal in Italy, and then these independent uh, tribunals. Um, is there a knowledge sharing that goes on between the different forms? No, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that that's another issue mm-hmm. that I think that these kind of activist communities that get involved in this do need to share uh, more. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And what about, so I, you know, you've talked a bit about the challenges and the limitations of people try people's tribunals, but what about some of the key strengths would you identify? Well, the key strengths is that I think you can, it it can be a very broad civil society discussion. I think that it can really, um, open the door to different topics and it can it can go, be as controversial as you'd like. Um, I think that the work product at the end, which is usually a final report, um, is very useful and it, it can be used on many levels uh, depending on, you know, who has uh, kind of done the work and what kind of work has been, you know, the, you can kind of assess the quality of it, which is, so for instance, the China Tribunal uh, one of the great things that that was done there is that if somebody wants to, like, let's say they just read the final report, um, yeah. every single piece of evidence that was looked at is actually posted. So you could actually go back, look at the entire record, and maybe you'll come to the same conclusion, or maybe you'll come to a totally different conclusion, but you have the ability to do that. So the other thing is, is the gathering of information where people can see, like, why are these people going crazy about this issue. Like what's, what's the big deal about it? So not all people's tribunals do that, but I think that's the other thing is really, it's about raising awareness, which is, I think a great strength uh, to people's tribunals. Mm. And actually, I think that's interesting in the kind of current political climate. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the China tribunal um, from the start to, you know, the whole process to the finish and because you've touched on a little bit, you know, there's a website um, and we can go and get the information, but it, can you just talk me through the process? Yeah, so it was um, kind of started by um, both uh, a gentleman in the United Kingdom and this organization called End uh, Transplant Abuse uh, Coalition. And mm-hmm. so they decided that they wanted to have this issue of forced organ harvesting uh, examined because there had always been kind of this, you know, chatter around the fact that this was happening in China uh, and it was yep. targeted towards political prisoners. And so essentially they decided to look at that question, but then they they were very specific as to what they wanted to look at, which is whether or not that behavior, if it exists, what kinds of crimes does it 
you know, cause or what, what is it violating under international criminal law? Mm -hmm. So we took a look at that and we had the hearings. And so it was really, I mean, I think everybody who came forward was very brave. We had people who were sharing things that were horrific, you know, and, um, and so we had to, you know, at the end of the day, as, as, as a member of, we were labeled a jury, um, everybody who was on the panel and we sat down and assessed every piece of evidence. And like I mentioned to you earlier, anybody can go back and look at what we looked at. So it's not like it was some secret. We didn't have anything that was, we, we looked at that nobody else has. We, everything we had is on there. Um, Mm -hmm. and so then we came to the determinations that we did. And so now, you know, we, we put out a preliminary report because we were kind of concerned at at the things that were coming forward just so that in the meantime, uh, you know, if people wanted to take action on something, they could, they they had something a little bit to do, which isn't normal, by the way, most people's tribunals don't put out an interim report, uh, or a summary report, but then by February, we finally finished it. And I, I think there's way too many footnotes. So I don't think anybody can question whether or not it's a serious report and it's 600 pages. So <laughs> wow. wow. That sounds very <laughs> impressive. Wow. Yeah. I, I um, assume, I assume you can't get this information if you're actually in China though. Oh, uh, and you, you know what? I, the tribunal in China. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'd actually be curious to see if, if somebody could get it when they were there. Um, maybe I'm going to doubt maybe with it. A VPN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, but so, and I assume also you did not hold the tribunal in China itself. No, no, we held it in the United Kingdom and I think okay. they felt that, yeah, that's, that's really kind of, because Sir Jeffrey, uh, nice was the one who headed it. He was the chairman. So, mm-hmm. um, he's in the UK and he's a UK, uh, barrister, uh, a Queen's Council, I believe, is the technical title for him. So, uh, yeah, he's based there. But I think one of the things that we found is that, uh, and and this tribunal was interesting because, well, most of them go up against the same thing, right? There's a government who completely and absolutely denies what the group yep. that's bringing the attention to is is doing. And that's the same thing we had here. It's the same thing the Iran tribunal dealt with, same thing with the UK Child Sex Abuse People's Tribunal a lot of denial. And so that's why these movements become very critical. Mm, that's, um, that's quite interesting. Um, another a quite different example, I think, in the book is the Australian perspective um, and talking about the ecological and environmental impact people's tribunals can feel. Can you tell me about, about this? Yeah, so um, Dr. Benoit Kampark did that. Uh, he wrote that mm-hmm. um, chapter, and he goes through the fact that, you know, in Australia, a lot of the people's tribun- tribunals' movements are centered around the environment. And what I think is interesting about that is that um, the ones in the U.S. that have happened, so for instance, there was one, uh, it, was, it was a little bit while ago now, but there was one on the effects of or the spring of Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. So that really the question of it, you know, would have impacted humans as well as the environment. And so the ones in Australia kind of look at that. And there's even one that's based on like the use of nuclear weapons. So a lot of these, like when they look at the environment, it's really interesting because I think sometimes people believe that, um, you know, what what can you do besides just say like you're hurting the environment? But the the reports that come out of these really call for, really nuanced, I think, kind of decisions and, and, 
and action items that should be done over them. Uh, what One interesting thing that I've heard is that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, um, the climate the climate group that's oh, Extinction Rebellion. That's I think they're based out of the UK. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They, I believe, are starting what's called citizens panels. Um, so I think it's people getting together and kind of talking about climate change and in different formats. So that's kind of like a new, I see it as a new genesis of what people's tribunals can be. Uh, especially on issues some like that are related to the environment, having people talk about it in in a in a very different way. Hmm. And do you think then the judgments and the decisions that are coming out of people's tribunals could be influential, say in domestic case law or legislation, perhaps in a similar way that international law is, um, both informing the conversation and then also kind of being written into judgments and this kind of thing, or do you think it's quite separate? I think it could be, but again, I think there's some stigma that still needs to be, that still needs to move yeah. from, you know, about people's tribunals that exist. But I, I think the good thing is, is if, if a people's tribunal has a legitimate, you know, kind of report at the end and it wasn't done in such a weird way, then it, and I say weird because like I said, like, I, I think I talk about this in the book is that there's some people's tribunals that issue warrants. Well, you actually don't have the authority to do that. So really a lot of it is symbolic stuff that if they just got down, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, to the heart of the matter, yeah. I think it has a lot more force than kind of messing around with all this, um, these types of things that don't, at the end of the day, they, they make it seem like this is not a serious thing. Because we, we also have to yeah. worry about perception. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. So, so do you think the key challenge then is probably... Um, beyond resources, but do you think it's a challenge of legitimacy? Yes, I, I do think there's a big challenge like that. And, and, but I think, we're, I think we're coming closer to where people are starting to see that the people who are part of the People's Tribunals mo- movements are not, it's not just a bunch of, you know, people who have nothing to say. There's, some, there's very legitimate things being yeah. said and reported out on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and certainly reading the book, it's you know all experts and it's very well informed and um and and as you just mentioned, the interim China report, six hundred pages long. It's yeah, it certainly sounds legitimate. I just I guess the challenge is convincing governments and judiciary and um, the public even how to you know get on board and get involved in this kind of thing because it does sounds like alternative solutions and ways of moving dialogue forward um, that could be of a great benefit. Um, another of the tribunals that gets, gets a lot of attention in the book is the women's tribunals and the feminist perspective. Uh, can you talk about what the, this idea of feminist approach to justice and perhaps why it's significant and also perhaps why it can be included in a people's tribunal whereas it may not come onto the domestic agenda outside of kind of regular political dialogue? Um, so Dr. Uh, Nina Trump uh, wrote that mm-hmm. uh, chapter, and I know that she had gone and, and um, I think, witnessed uh, some of those proceedings. And I, I think what's interesting about it is that, um, you know, the fact that there was a space like that for women to be able to come forward to talk about things that are very difficult. Um, I think yeah. sometimes what makes it hard um, uh, in a normal court proceeding 
to have that perspective is, is kind of the fact that it's, you know, once you have a tradition in place, it's so hard to challenge that tradition. So like for a, a, a while in the United States, you know, people never thought about what the problem was with, with a domestic violence victim coming in and facing her accuser in court. And, and it really took, I think, a lot of reflection, you know, and that maybe in some cases, a feminist perspective wasn't used, but, you know, even with the feminist perspective, right, it, it takes some time to incorporate it because we're dealing with strong traditions and those traditions may not be open to what these kind of new interpretations may be. Um, it, it's kind of at some point in time, there were even conversations about, uh, you know, allowing people to, based on their culture, to just narrate what happened as opposed to, um, you know, interrupting them with f leading questions and, or cross-examination or things like that, because just culturally, they didn't understand that. So I, I think the hard part about domestic, those situations, and even political situations is really just, is the challenge to tradition. Whereas with people's tribunals, again, we're, we're making it from scratch. So if you wanted to do it from... Yeah. You know, one of the newer movements is the fourth, it's not a newer movement, but the fourth world approaches to international law, which is really the indigenous movements and perspectives on it. Uh, that's something that, you know, this is not like something new for, for a lot of the indigenous peoples, this kind of truth telling uh, these conversations. And so it's a very, it, it, I think it all depends on what we're really, you know, what kind of systems we're talking about and yeah. Yeah, and just picking up on that, because the chapter on Iran, um, it is, you know, it is titled The Promotion of Truth and Justice. So do you do you see this as a way that people's tribunals can fill this kind of gap? Because it is different to, you know, the trial process, for example, which which is it's about finding a verdict, but it's not necessarily about finding truth and justice. You know, it's based on rules of evidence and this kind of thing. So do you see, especially with relation to the Iran tribunal, this, this idea of does it promote truth and justice, would you say? I, I think it does. And I think for them, so that's a great example, right? In a, in a court of law um, that those, the massacres they looked at took place in the 80s. I believe that was their time frame, And so that would not probably be something that people could litigate now because of the statute of limitations and all these other kinds of uh, political, definitely political will. There's a lot of problems with that too, right? So um, for them, for the survivors that came forward, that is their their truth report, and that's their truth. And so um, I think the Iran Tribunal was a really good example of, and their report was huge too. That's another report that's absolutely um, big and very detailed, um, and it even goes into like who is responsible for what because those they were able to find all that information and get it. Um, so yeah, I, I do think the Iran tribunal is a really good example of, of truth and justice and being able to use that. And so going back to your earlier question, if you, we were to turn that into a truth commission, what, what would be the variables? We would have to, Iran would be part of it. And, and what wouldn't they limit the questions and who else would be a part of it? And then we have funding and maybe the, we're only going to set it up for three days and call it a day. I mean, most truth commissions last a lot longer than that, but you see what I mean? Whereas this tribunal was able yeah. to just look at the massacres freely. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a similar issue that's raised in the, there's a chapter on Japan um, titled Transitional Justice Delayed is Not Transitional Justice Denied. 
um, in relation to Japanese human experimentation during World War II. Um, I mean, I think the, the author of that chapter, um, Zachary Kaufman, you know, he does touch on the limits in terms, the temporal limits. At the same time, as you say, you know, it's not necessarily barred by statute of limitations and this kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about the Japanese uh, tribunal and, you know, the, the strengths and the benefits perhaps? Yeah, so Zachary, Zachary's um, chapter I really wanted to include because there's an example of one that hasn't happened yet. But here's exactly how we would approach setting one up, which is what I wanted the reader to be able to get. And I think he did a great job, which is here's this issue that kind of is a historic, we can say that it's a historical issue, right? But maybe it's come to influence many things that we don't realize because it was never, it still hasn't been looked at. But, um, you know, in setting up a, a, a people's tribunal, what one of the things it can do is is set a historical record from, you know, the point yeah. of view of the people who participate and it can maybe bring some clarity. So in that in that sense, I think a people's tribunal really is being set up for historical clarification, you know, and, and for truth. So truth and clarification. And maybe on some level there would be, you know, kind of a request for an apology or, or something of the sort. So I think what, what I really liked about his chapter is we don't know because this is one that hasn't been done yet. Um, but we now know what the issues are that a people's tribunal could look at. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting that there, there are, I think there is certainly significant benefit in terms of like asking how we remember something and, you know, issuing apologies and how we move forward. And, and also in order to prevent these kind of atrocities happening again. So, um, in terms of setting up, it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting chapter. Just you know, working through these issues, and then I think in terms of looking to the future, where do you see the future direction of people's tribunals going? Well, I think I think that they really. I think they're going to gain more ground. I think as people realize that there are a lot of issues that they want to discuss, and maybe will never get the airtime that they want. And I think that a lot of them can be, um, they will be effective. But I think one of the biggest tricks to the future of people's tribunals is, as I mentioned in the book, and as Shadi uh, Sather wrote in her chapter as well, at the, in the conclusion of the book, is we, we, there, are some, there are some things we have to be realistic about. And, and number one is really identifying what the victim and survivor's rights are. Number two is what are we doing after we've done all this work? And we have yeah. to ensure that movement carries on because, you know, and, and I always like to use that kind of uh, visual depiction, which is it's just one moment in time of a huge movement. So it's very rare for the People's Tribunal to be, this is the movement and that's it. It's just this one thing because you're really trying to get out of it some action items to do something really great with. And I think that's, if we look at the first one that we know of under this category of People's Tribunals, the Russell Tribunal, that was his goal, right? Was for the U.S. to take yep. accountability for its actions in Vietnam, and then, to, of course, for the U.S. to, to leave. And so, um, I think that's. I think the future is very bright, and and we'll see yep. uh, what other kind of formats we'll come up with. And do you think that that's probably the key success of people's tribunals? Its role in broader movements at, you know, 
broadening the dialogue and actually there being action after the tribunal concludes. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's, um, well, that's, that's very positive and I'm, I'm really glad to kind of like, you know, end on that note um, that there is hope for the future. It's, you know, always what we want to hear, especially at the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> so now I have taken, <laughs> so we definitely need something. Um, I have taken quite a, a, taken up quite a bit of your time, Regina, but before you go, can you tell us about what you're working on next? Yeah. So, um, right now, uh, we're, um, I just, I continue to work with, uh, um, kind of like different indigenous groups and, and, and trying to see how we can, uh, get their voices uh, raised and and um, the other kinds of projects through my foundation are just uh, you know kind of independent topics. So we just finished a report, for instance, on uh, economic, cultural, and social rights. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with um, two wonderful um, people in the United Kingdom on that, and uh, we have a publication coming out this month uh, on it. And so basically, how do you how do you people who may not realize that they have certain rights, how do they realize them? And that's really mm-hmm. kind of the next, what's on the horizon. So, um, and, and who knows, maybe as a result of those questions, more people's tribunals will be invented. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that sounds like essential work for these times. Um, so that's great. And I'll, I'll definitely follow up and want to hear more about that. Um, so thank you so much. And Rich, Regina Paulus, uh, thank you again for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your new new book, People's Tribunals, Human Rights and the Law. It's published by Rootledge earlier this year. I'm Jane Richards on the New Books in Law channel for the New Books Network. <laughs>